Well, let me add my thanks to Christ Methodist Church for their kindness in taking us wayward amen people in this morning. We really, really appreciate it. Rob Roden and I have been looking around saying, we need to do some stuff to our fellowship hall. You know, this looks nice. Uh, we need to dress things up a little bit. Uh, but thank you, Methodists, those of you who helped us with our parking, those of you who opened the building and uh, are the custodians here, Christy back there in the sound, those in the kitchen. Uh, we just really, really appreciate your hospitality. Uh, we all love the Methodists. Uh, we Protestants desperately need the Methodists because the Methodists are the people who specialize on the topic we're going to study this morning, which is compassion and mercy. They're really, really good at that. And some of you were some of those drunks down the gutter, and the Methodist is the one who picked you up and got you out of there. And that's, that's their role in Protestant Christianity. They show mercy to the poor and the left behind and the, the drunkards. And, it, you know, there's a way in which in Protestantism it kind of cycles through. The, after the Methodists pick them up and clean them up, the Baptists get them and teach them how to get saved and how to tithe. And then after they become tithers, the Presbyterians take them in because we want to talk about theology. and We don't know a whole lot, so that doesn't take us long. And after a while, the, the poor man uh, wants a little class, and so he goes to the Episcopal Church. And, uh, and they give them these wine and cheese parties, and then after they overdo that a little bit, they end up in the gutter again. The Methodists come by and pick them back up, and here we go again. That's the way it works. And that's what has kept the Protestants alive to this day. Ah. Guys, uh, I do wonder why Corinth, Mississippi is named Corinth. That's a good question, Rob. I, I, don't, I don't think we have an answer for that, except that somebody uh, had either read their New Testament and didn't love his neighbors, or hadn't read the New Testament, because we've seen that the very word to Corinthianize means to commit sexual immorality in the first century A.D. They were notorious for their wickedness. And as we've examined 1 Corinthians in our first semester... We've seen problem after problem after problem, beginning with different speakers creating different crowds. You know, I belong to this Sunday school class. Well, I belong to that one. Well, my teacher is this and that. My teacher is that. And they're all divided up. And Paul says, any of these people die for you? You know, Jesus Christ is the one who died for you, and he unites us all together. That takes about four chapters of 1 Corinthians to deal with. And then he gets into their sexual immorality. And he says, you guys are doing stuff the pagans wouldn't even think about. Man, and then you're not only doing it, you're bragging about it because you're saying, oh, we're free in Jesus to be whatever we want to be. He says, that you've got you to deal with that. So in 1 Corinthians 5, he tells them how to deal with that. And then in 1 Corinthians 6, we saw they're suing each other in the civil courts. Somebody needs to take a page out of the Bible there and go to work on it because that happens even here in Memphis. But when you're in the body of the Lord Jesus Christ, you're in a family. And we work out our differences as family, healthy families work them out. Paul teaches that in 1 Corinthians 6. And then we saw in 7 how he talks about singleness and marriage. Once again on the sexual topic because uh, the Corinthians uh, were rampant in their sexual immorality. They were all coming out of that. They had all been taken out of the gutter and brought into the Corinthian church. And then in chapters 8 through 10, you remember he talked about uh, how they need to leave their devotion to some of these pagan festivals. Because they were involved in worship, whether they realized it or not. And he said, you need to come out of those uh, eating meat offered to idols in those uh, temple restaurants, as we would call them. And then in chapter 11, he talks to them about the Lord's Supper and uh, or in 10 and 11. And then we saw in 12, 13, 14 about spiritual gifts, then about the resurrection. Their doctrine of the resurrection was all off. 
They thought that the resurrection had already taken place and it was a spiritual resurrection only. And there are some churches today all over the city who teach that. That it's kind of like the spring, you know, the, the crocuses come out and you kind of come out and that's what the resurrection is all about. And Paul says, baloney on that. He said, if that's all the resurrection is, you're to be pitied more than all other people in every other religion in the world because you're being fooled because our whole faith is built upon a bodil- bodily resurrection. And he said, Christ has been raised bodily. Don't tell me there's no bodily resurrection. He was bodily raised. And if he was bodily raised, you're in him. You're going to be bodily raised. And therefore, you don't give up. Verse 58 in chapter 15. You always abound in the work, knowing that your labor in the Lord is not in vain because of the bodily resurrection. And then in chapter 16, you remember he says to them, now, y'all collect your money together and every Sunday bring your money in. Hold it for me. Uh, because I'm coming to take it to Jerusalem for the poor saints. And so he encourages them in their giving. Now, having been through that curriculum last semester, we would think, surely these people are going to straighten their lives out. But the things get worse in some ways. You know, people don't like to be told what to do. You ever notice that? And even, especially by preachers. You know, these people who don't have a real job, they just preach and rattle their mouths off, and they're trying to tell me how to live my life. Well, that's kind of the way that folks in Corinth felt with the Apostle Paul. And we're going to find that while Paul was in Ephesus writing this letter, 1 Corinthians, while that was going on, he was writing the letter, they were having some other visiting preachers who had some other notions, some other ideas. And they were teaching the Corinthians, well, you know, Paul is... He's not very impressive, I'm sure you noticed. And they were very eloquent, trained in oratory. And they used common first century rhetoric, which could be very flowery, very sophisticated. And the people loved to listen to them. And these guys who came visiting Corinth, they also, unlike Paul, were willing to take honoraria. They were willing to take money from them, which added to their glamour, you know, you get what you pay for. And if the guy's free, it must not be worth very much. You know, I need to think about that. <laughs> and so the people were scorning Paul because he would not take their money because he did not want to be confused for one of those other guys. He did not want them to think that he was just coming through, passing the hat, trying to make a living off of fancy stories. He wanted to preach the gospel to them. And so he did, free of charge, and he wouldn't take their money. Unlike the Macedonians, he would take their money, but he wouldn't take the Corinthians' money. Why? It was Corinth. And these people were too immature. And furthermore, these people, these visiting, these guest lecturers, they had mystical experiences. And Paul was so plain and ordinary and practical. And he would give you stuff that was supposed to be to work on the street, talk to you about your sex life, and talk to you about your finances, and talk to you about your marriage, and all these common practical things. But these other people, they were high-soaring philosophers, and they were also very mystical in their experience. So there were many reasons why they began to scorn the Apostle Paul in his absence. And they began to say, well, you know, he was okay while he was here, but now we have the next grade up. You know, we've upgraded our, our preaching around here. And these guys had a different message rooted more deeply in the Old Testament. And they were trying to convince the Corinthians, well, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need to have the Old Testament law and put that into practice like a good Jew would. And so they were messing up the gospel message as well. So Paul, uh, if, you'll, if you'll look at 
uh, your first page, you see I have a history of Paul's seven-year ministry of the Corinthians. Let me show you where we are right now while all this is going on. In Paul's second missionary journey, he makes his first trip to Corinth in Acts chapter 18 that you're, you're familiar with. That was around somewhere between 50 and 52 A.D. And he was there a long time. He was there a year and a half. And Paul goes to Corinth. He's the first Christian that goes there that we know of. He goes by himself, which is very rare. You remember, usually he's, he's traveling with an entourage. This time in Corinth, because Timothy's late coming to Athens, Paul just goes right on from Athens to Corinth. And you can see on your map, it's not that far. But Paul goes to this huge city, 700,000 people. Very wicked city, all by himself, the only Christian. Amazing task. Amazing feat that he evangelized people, led them to Christ, and planted a church. So Paul was the church founder in Corinth. Now, we don't know how much longer after that. Paul sends his first letter that we do not have. We don't have a copy of this. He refers to it in 1 Corinthians that he had already written them. And when he writes them, you remember that it suggests that he wrote to them about several practical issues in the church. But then notice, secondly, Paul then writes his second letter, which is what we know as 1 Corinthians, and he wrote that from Ephesus. That's the one we just studied. And that was 54, 55 A.D. So maybe a couple years after he had been, first of all, in Corinth, he now writes 1 Corinthians. But he's already written them once. And you remember in 1 Corinthians, he's responding to two sources of information. He's responding to things he's heard from Chloe's household. And he's also responding to a letter they sent him asking questions. And that's the reason that from chapter 7 on, you get his language concerning duh, concerning this, concerning that. He's answering their letter. Then Paul apparently makes a painful visit. He refers to it in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians and in chapter 13 of 2 Corinthians. This painful trip apparently was because they were questioning his credentials. He leaves Ephesus, apparently, and goes by sea. Look on your map. He doesn't go up the way he does on his third visit up to Philippi. He catches a ship in Ephesus and he sails across the sea over to Centria, where Corinth is. And he makes his second visit. And when this visit, apparently, is where they really confronted him. And they said to him, you know, you're really impressive when you write letters. You're not much in person. I mean, they were saying some pretty ugly stuff to him. I'm sure pastors here and Christian leaders, you don't know anything about this. But they were being very bluntly antagonistic. Paul, on that second painful visit to Ephesus, apparently, and this is rare for Paul, but he finds himself almost speechless. Either that or, out of humility, he thinks he just needs to pull away for a season. So he goes back to Ephesus with his heart torn up because the church he planted looks like it's beginning to become another religion, a Judaistic, Christo-Judaistic sort of religion and abandoning the gospel. And they've thrown his apostolic authority overboard. So he goes back to Ephesus, a very, very sad man. But he leaves uh, Timothy there. And later Timothy joins him and tells him more about it. And he writes then this sorrowful letter. Now this will be the third letter that we know of that Paul wrote then in 55 or 56 AD. It was shortly after his trip. The sorrowful letter confronts them very strongly about their abandoning his apostolic authority, 
about their moving toward these other, quote, super apostles, these visiting lecturers, and uh, about their abandoning the gospel itself. And Paul confronts them and warns them. It's a, he wrote it with tears. And it, once again, Paul was a, although Paul was a very brave and courageous man, he was also a very sensitive man. And we'll see this in 2 Corinthians. So Paul writes this third letter, we don't have a copy of it, that excoriated them for their disobedience to the Lord and to him as an apostle. Ooh. Then, uh, Paul, after he had been in Ephesus for 18 months, if you look on your map, he goes from Ephesus by land up to Troas. And then he crosses the sea to Philippi, or at least the Macedonian area. We assume he went to Philippi and those other cities that he was familiar with because it was Paul's practice once he planted a church, not to abandon it, but to continue to strengthen it, nurture it, preach to it, help appoint elders, train, uh, equip leaders. So he was discipling all the time and encouraging. Paul goes up to Macedonia. Now, it's from Macedonia that he writes his fourth letter, which we know as 2 Corinthians. So after all this that's gone on, now we're going to hear what Paul has to say in 2 Corinthians. Now what we need to realize is that Paul had sent Titus. Paul had these very, very important lieutenants. They were not apostles. They were legates. They were, they were representatives of the apostle. And they were very influential. Titus was one of his key ones. And of course we have a, a, a letter to Titus from Paul. But Titus went to Corinth to check it out for Paul. And to see how they were doing with this tearful letter. See what kind of response they were making. Titus comes back to Paul when he's in uh, either Troas or Macedonia. And has great news for him. That the Corinthians have tearfully uh, repented. That they were very sorrowful at his third letter. And that the majority of the church has really moved back to an evangelical commitment to the gospel, and to the Apostle Paul. So Paul is deeply, deeply gratified. And you'll see the tender language that's in 2 Corinthians. Now, other things that are going on, however, are that, as you would expect, with a church that's been through rough waters like this, there's always a minority, isn't there? And there is a minority that is holding out, still preferring the super apostles. There's still an issue in that church. And now that the leaders generally have repented, those who are in the minority have to be pretty stubborn people. You know how that goes. Those who divide churches when there's no reason to, they're pretty stubborn people. And so when you get to chapter 8 in 2 Corinthians, you will begin to read some things where some scholars say this couldn't be the same letter. Somebody must have taken two different letters and pasted them together because chapter 8 has such strong language in it. Well, we'll, we'll, when we get there, we'll we'll see why it it doesn't make any sense to suggest they were separate letters. But let me just say this. Paul is addressing the minority. Chapters 1 through 7, he's speaking to everybody, especially focusing on the majority. That's important to remember. Focus on the majority. But he does have a strong word for the minority uh, in chapter... Oh, actually, it starts in chapter 10. Uh, where you'll see that strong language. I'm sorry, I said chapter 8, it's chapter 10, uh, where you see the strong language. And it looks like a complete shift of mood. 
So now Paul is writing to them, and, uh, and he is grateful for their obedience, but he realizes it's not a complete obedience, and there are a number of issues that need to be addressed. He's uh, writing to them a tearful... This is also a very passionate letter. And the beauty of this letter is that if you are exercising Christian leadership, and I hope you are, every single one of you, somewhere exercising distinctively Christian leadership, when you do, you know you're going to take some hits. Everybody does. You're going to be scorned for your view of Christ and your view of the gospel and your view of everybody's need for salvation. You're going to get beat up. The more you're in Christian leadership, the more you're going to experience it. This letter flays open Paul's heart. And it's beautiful because when he's under attack, it takes you into the deeper recesses of his being. And you get to see his motivational framework. So we hear the theology of Paul. We look at the practices of Paul. But in 2 Corinthians, you're going to get the heart of Paul. And that's the reason that it's one of my favorite books in the New Testament. So let's take a look at it now with all that background, which I hope I didn't waste your time. But I think it's hard to really understand what 2 Corinthians is about without that kind of uh, background and prelude leading up to it. Let's take a look at these first 11 verses. Paul writing from Macedonia now to the Corinthians who have at least in majority repented, but where there are still some lingering issues. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you also will share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many." Okay, notice first of all, God speaks to His church. God speaks to His church. Sometimes we're really bad. Sometimes we're particularly wicked. Sometimes we are very rebellious. And God still speaks to His church. Praise be to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how does He do it? He does it, A, through faithful messengers. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And Timothy, our brother. So Paul says, I am a faithful messenger. I am an apostle. I was sent personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a personal eyewitness view of His resurrected and ascended self on the road to Damascus. And I'm a worker of signs and miracles. Those are the three qualifications of being apostle. 
personally sent by Christ, eyewitness of his uh, resurrected glory, and someone who has been given the gift of signs and wonders uh, that, are, that mark him out as an apostle. Paul says, I am an apostle. So even in the first sentence, he's addressing one of the major issues. You all want to throw, overthrow my apostolicity? I'm telling you, I am an apostle, not because I made myself one. I'm not a self-appointed apostle like so many in our own day. No, I was appointed by God himself. So if you have an argument with me, your argument is really with the Lord. So God is faithful to us to give us apostles. We had 12 of them, and many of them wrote to us. Do you realize this is God giving you a messenger? And then you've had missionaries and evangelists through 2,000 years bringing the gospel to you today. It's because he loves you. And he still speaks to his church. He's still speaking to his church. Do you go to church expecting to hear the Lord? Do you go to Amen Bible study expecting not to hear a sinful preacher, but to hear the Lord speaking to your heart? This is his mechanism by which he does it. He's appointed apostles, and then we all expound the apostolic doctrine as we study the Bible. That's what he's doing. He's communicating with you. Now, secondly, notice B, he also speaks to a struggling congregational congregation. And we've seen, of course, how they have struggled. We've mentioned that already. Ethically, doctrinally, and relationally. These three go together. If you're messing up your doctrine, you're going to mess up your ethic. If you mess up your ethic, you're going to mess up your relationships. And you can see this over and over again in the in the malpractice of social justice. It all begins with faulty doctrine, faulty ethic, and then faulty relationships. Or if you mess up in your personal morality, it's you're messing up your doctrine, your ethics, and your relationship. And the Corinthians did this uh, almost like a full-time job. Now, see, notice in verse 2, that God speaks to us with an encouraging message. Now, this is remarkable. If you think anybody in the Bible, besides maybe the Ninevites, uh, didn't deserve an encouraging message would be the Corinthians. They had surrendered every right to God's kindness, hadn't they? And God still speaks encouragement to them. What does he say through his apostle? Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see how God is defined. He is our Father and he is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only God who is. And he is the only God who can offer and extend grace and peace to anybody. This is not just another one of the world religions. This is a, the distinctive truth, the only truth representing the only true and living God. The only God who is, is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So you can't have grace and you can't have peace without him. Now just take grace for a moment. How could you possibly have the grace of the Bible without a trinity? Because grace means you didn't earn your position with God. It was earned for you. And it was earned by whom? The Lord Jesus Christ. Who is He? The second person of the the Trinity. He's deity who takes on flesh. Why is that important? Because when He lives the perfect life, He is deity. Therefore, it has infinite value. Therefore, it can be imputed to you and you get credit for that perfect life. If Jesus were only a human being, he would only be doing what one human being must do to go to heaven, live a perfect life. But because he is deity, his perfection is infinite, and he can impute it to whomever he pleases, and he imputed it to you. 
How do you experience grace like that, where you're, you're given a perfect record without a trinity? And how in the world do you have your sins forgiven if the one who died in your place is not deity? If he's not deity, all he could have done was to die for the sins of one man. But because he's deity, he could die for the sins of many. So without the trinity, which the Christians believe, you can't have grace in our justification where righteousness is imputed to us and our sins are imputed to another. Well, neither can you have renewal of heart because it is the deity, the third person of the Trinity, who visits us and takes up residence in our hearts and cleanses us of our sin. That's by the power of the living God that this is done. Now, that's what grace is all about. It's God on our behalf. It's unmerited favor from God to undeserving sinners like ourselves. So don't tell me that all religions are fundamentally gracious. They're not. Let me tell you what all religions are. And I'll sum them all up for you and save your studies in uh, in, uh, comparative religions at the undergraduate and graduate level. Here's the message of every religion. Be good and don't give up. Now just think about it. Liberal Protestantism is that way. Uh, Judaism is that way. Islam, Hinduism, Buddhism. Be good, don't give up. Believing Christianity, gospel-centered Christianity is the only religion that offers grace. And Paul says, you Corinthians, you wild and crazy people, you nutcases, listen to me. Grace to you. You don't deserve it. You just read my letters to you. You know you don't deserve it. But God gives it to you by the power of what the first person and the second person, the third person in the Trinity of the Godhead is doing for you. And then he says, peace. He offers peace. Let's say something about peace here while we're talking about it. The word is shalom in Hebrew, irene, from which we get the word irenic uh, in Greek. And shalom in the Old Testament is a concept of well-being and completeness. It's not just the cessation of hostilities. No, it's everything being in place. And that's the reason that we say what every neighborhood in Memphis needs is shalom. Every neighborhood. That means that everything in those neighborhoods is working well. We have 127 neighborhoods. 90 of them do not have shalom. They don't have the fundamental things in their neighborhoods that need to take place to have shalom. What Paul is saying is to you Corinthians, you embattled minority who are the Christians, peace to you. One day it's going to come. Now let's talk about peace for just a minute. The only way you can have the peace of God is when you have peace with God. And peace with God comes from His wrath being averted off your head. And that happens by his placing the wrath that is due you, you earned it, but is averted and goes on to the Lord Jesus Christ at Calvary's cross. And therefore you have peace with God because there's no wrath abiding on you. You remember Jesus said, John chapter 3, those who do not trust in Jesus Christ, Christ, the wrath of God abides or remains on them. So we're brought into this world as children of wrath. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. We're under the wrath of God as we're conceived. This is one of the more difficult things in the Christian life to embrace. We don't have time to unpack it all, but that's what the Bible teaches us. When Adam and Eve sinned, the entire race came under condemnation. So none of us deserves His favor and none of us deserves His peace. But what Jesus Christ has done for us is to come and take the wrath of for us. He set aside God's wrath. Look at Romans chapter 3. You'll see that His wrath 
is dispensed upon Jesus Christ who stands in our place. Therefore now, we have peace with God. Now when you know that in your conscience, that you've been set free from what you deserve, the wrath of God, and you're favored and loved by God, then you have the peace of God that passes all understanding. And then you, when you have that peace, what the Bible teaches us, you give that peace to other people. If you have shalom, you want to communicate shalom to other people. And so when you, when you look at a city where 11% of the people live in neighborhoods of choice, 89% of the people are living in neighborhoods that are broken down, you have to say, somebody here hasn't experienced peace because when you have peace, you give peace to other people. Now, Paul is saying to the Corinthians this wild statement because they're living in a very wicked city as a very small minority, but he says, peace to you. That is one day it's coming. And for the Christian, we know that ultimately when Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, comes back, he will bring shalom to the entire cosmos. And his people who have been this embattled minority and have been the microcosm of his kingdom for all these centuries, what they know in their spirits, they will then experience in physical reality in the new heavens and the new earth. So Paul is making no light salutation here when he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, notice that uh, you have a brief outline of 2 Corinthians here for the sake of time. I'm moving on. Uh, but you can see the general gist of 2 Corinthians in that outline. Now, in verses 3 through 10, <clears throat> we get to the heart of our text where God comforts His church. He comforts His church. Now, the reasons for Paul's and their discomfort, we've already discussed. There was a major controversial disciplinary case. I didn't mention that. But going back to 1 Corinthians 5 with the sexual immorality, <clears throat> Paul says, you all deal with that brother. Well, we don't know who that brother was, but he must have been somebody important because it nearly tore up the church. And they were very resentful, some of them, toward Paul for suggesting that they should discipline this other citizen of Corinth who happened to be a member of the church. But Paul explained to them, you, you can't live like pagans and claim to be Christians. And I would say if there's one crying need in the churches of our day, including in Memphis, it is that we put into practice what we're teaching. And if we say we believe these things and we believe this, these ethics, then let's insist on them in our fellowship. And that's all Paul was doing. But boy, he got unmitigated grief for it. And then, of course, I've mentioned the other things here that cause this tension and discomfort. So... Paul said, now speaks of the comfort that God gives. Now, first of all, in verse 3, you'll notice this comfort comes to us because it is God's nature. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. That is who He is. And when you look at Isaiah 4, when I, uh, 40, when Isaiah is predicting something that's going to happen 100 years later, they're already experiencing the Assyrian um, captivity, but he's predicting the Babylonian captivity almost a hundred years later. And before he predicts it, he says, let me tell you this though, God will say, comfort, comfort ye my people. So before he even explains that they're going to be in captivity, he talks about the comfort they're going to receive from God. Why? Because God comforts his people. That's who he is. He's a God of mercy. That's the reason we love the Methodists. They've taken 
a character. I don't mean just the Methodists, you know that. But by their legacy and reputation, they've taken this attribute of God and have really tried to work it out in their relationship to each other and their relationship to society. Going back to John Wesley and many others, they've been very concerned about that because it's God's very nature to be compassionate and merciful and to give comfort. Um, and let's think for just a minute about what the word comfort means. Uh, you're, some of you are familiar, familiar with the Greek word uh, parakaleo, or we, uh, Jesus is sometimes called the paraclete, the one who comes alongside. That's the word. So Jesus, if he's paraclete, he's the comforter. And the Holy Spirit is the paraclete. He's the comforter. So God himself, in the second third persons of the Trinity, especially speaks of himself as comforter. And it means to come alongside. Now, the English translation, comfort, comes from the word com, which means with, and forte, which means strength. So God comes alongside to strengthen us. And we've kind of softened the word comfort to mean something kind of tender, get a little bit of encouragement. But comfort means to bolster and embolden and strengthen somebody. So what God is doing with his sympathy for us and his consolation and his mercies, he is strengthening us to face the incredible opposition and challenges that you have even today when you go to work. God's at work to strengthen you for this and to comfort you. That's what comfort actually means. And we've, we've kind of uh, airbrushed it into meaning something else over the uh, centuries. But you'll find the word comfort, either verb or noun, ten times in our text. So obviously it's a major theme. And the backdrop for this theme are the words afflictions and sufferings, sentence of death. Afflictions is there three times, sufferings three times, uh, sentence of death once. So you have this dark backdrop of the misery that we face in life, and especially in our opposition when we're trying to do something good. And the foreground is God's comfort because it's His very nature. Now, in verse 4a, notice it is not only His nature, it is universal. He says He comforts us in all our afflictions. This will be our internal afflictions where we're, we're confused and, and befuddled and distressed. It would be our external troubles where we're being opposed and where we're deprived of things that we need. God comforts us in all of our afflictions. David says, I've seen the children of God for years, and I've never seen one of them begging bread. God takes care of us in all of our afflictions. I don't know what your affliction is this morning, but let me just ask you something. Do you understand that not only is your affliction designed by God for you, it's no mistake and it doesn't catch Him by surprise, but it's His intent to comfort you and strengthen you in that particular affliction. Some of you have cancer. I don't know why God has seen that you have cancer, but I know that He intends to strengthen you and comfort you in your cancer. Some of you guys have marriages you just do not understand or you're about ready to bail out and give up. God has put you in that marriage by His providence. And it is His intent to comfort you and strengthen you in that marriage. That's His intent. It's universal in all of our afflictions. And the biggest problem that Christian men make sometimes is that they think there are some things they just have to handle by themselves. They're just going to take it into their own hands. And this is nothing but abject pride. God has everything in His hands. 
And he intends to show you how he will work it out by his might and his power as you humble yourself and submit to him and look for his guidance and trust his power in your affliction. That is what the apostle is saying. He is by nature a comforter and he comforts us in all of our afflictions. And Paul knows it. He's sitting up there in Macedonia before he gets the report from Titus. Now what has just happened to him? We'll find out in verse 8. He was sent out of Ephesus on a rail. They almost killed him. So he's been in Ephesus for 18 months and he gets run out of town. Meanwhile, he was in Corinth for 18 months and they don't want to see him either. And he's up there in Macedonia with nowhere to go. And the two big cities that he's cultivated in his apostolic career, Ephesus and Corinth, and they're both troubled. And Paul says, I know the comfort of God because I had nowhere else to go. And sometimes, brothers, he's got to get you where you know you have nowhere else to go. And you finally look up. And what he's saying to you is, I want you to look up every day and every moment. Not just when you get in total distress and finally, finally realize you don't have the power to deal with it. Let me tell you something. You're all checking out of here. Some of you sooner than than others, I can see. We're all checking out of here. And you're going to find out when you're on a bed. And if you're fortunate enough to have a merciful wife who's waiting on you, you'll be thanking her a zillion times because you can't take care of yourself. And eventually, she can't even handle your biggest problem. And you just turn your face toward the wall and you just die. There's only one person who can accompany you. There's only one. The Lord Jesus Christ. And in that final affliction, you will find out if you're trusting Him, He is up to this. He will comfort you in your deepest affliction. Why don't you learn that now? in the smaller things of life, in everything that you're doing. Why don't you practice dying now? The Puritans used to do that all the time. Practice dying in their minds. Go through it. And once you've handled your greatest enemy, death itself, then you can handle some financial problems. You can handle some relationship problems. You can handle some health problems. You've already died. So Paul is saying here, it's universal. The comfort of God is meant to apply to every affliction in life. No exceptions. God's too big for you to start making exceptions for him. Now, notice, uh, C, it is communicable. He says, look, you get this comfort from God. Well, what are you supposed to do with it? Give it to somebody else, silly. You've been comforted by God so that you can comfort others with the same comfort with which you've been comforted. We're all experts in something. Let me tell you where your expertise is. It's where you've struggled and found the comfort of God Uh, suitable for you. Paul himself here in chapter 2 is going to say, I've got all these churches to take care of. Who is sufficient for this? Who's equal to this task? And of course the question is, well, certainly not you, Paul. But no, he gets to to chapter 12 and you get the answer. Paul's sufficient for this. Why? Because God says, my grace is sufficient for you. So when you have God's grace, He makes you sufficient. He comforts, He strengthens, He builds you up so that you're actually sufficient for the day. And then when you face the difficulties in life, that's where your expertise is because you've learned how to access the comfort of God in that area. And now you become the professor, the professor of cancer, the the professor of a bad marriage, the professor of a broken business, the professor of bankruptcy. We've got all kinds of professorships in this room. Because when you've learned something by trusting in God, you've got to pass it on. That's what Christians are. We communicate. Now, there's some things that unbelievers do well. 
in comforting us. And I have unbelieving friends who will do these things. Number one, let me give you three things that they do that we should do too. Number one, they accompany us. That is, they just sit down with you. They're there. They're present. And you remember with Job's friends, they did fine because they were present. They did fine until they opened their blooming mouths. And then they messed everything up. And sometimes we're the same way. You just need to be there. And an unbeliever and a believer can be there and help people. We should do that. We've talked about it before. When your friends' friends die, you go to the funerals. Why? To be there. It's amazing what just the ministry of presence does in another person's life in comforting and strengthening them. You're with them. Number two, we listen. And a well-trained pagan knows how to listen. Active listening. Oh, you're saying this. Well, how did that affect you? You, you ask follow-up questions. You're listening very actively. And thirdly, <clears throat> we can say we're sorry. We can express sympathy. And in order to comfort people, we need to learn to do those things. And men especially, we, that doesn't seem to be our long suit. Our, we usually have to learn from the women folk how you need to be there, you need to listen, and you need to sympathize. And some of us, we go home tonight to our wives. You know, there are three things you can do that will be really be good. Why don't you be there? Why don't you listen? Maybe even ask a few follow-up questions instead of thinking, when is she going to, you know, cut it off and let me go back and read my newspaper? Instead of thinking that way, why don't you ask her a few follow-up questions? And then why don't you express some sympathy to what she just said? You'll be amazed how that will change your sex life. Next point. Uh, So that we have in common with the pagan, but we have some distinctive... We have some distinctive Christian ways in which we sympathize or in which we communicate comfort. And we need to be good at this too. And let me give you these things. First of all, we remind the person of God's promises. Job's friends didn't do that. They reminded Job of Job's sin. We remind people of God's promises to them. It doesn't, no sermons allowed in the waiting line, you know, at visiting hours. But we just say, you know, God loves you. He does. That's a promise. He does love you. And if you get more in-depth time, you can explain other promises of God that he says that, you know, he's going to reconcile all this at the, end, at the last day as much as we grieve now. We know that he'll bring it all together. So we, we have words of comfort that have to do with the promises of God. We also can exhort our brother to trust him. And... Christian brothers can comfort, strengthen one another by reminding us to trust him. Uh, You remember when David was under attack by Saul? Saul's son, Jonathan, goes out to the cave to do what? Strengthen, comfort David. How did he comfort him? David, you're the king. You're the future dynasty, not my daddy. And God has made promises to you. He's going to establish your household. David, be bold in the Lord. David, don't fear. Don't cower. All kinds of things that David or that Jonathan would have said to David. So we have words of promise and words of exhortation. And thirdly, we have prayer. So we can comfort one another because in our affliction sometimes we go speechless. We go numb. We hardly know how to say anything to anybody, including God. But my brother comes alongside and just takes my arm. He says, Sandy, I'm going to take us to the throne. And he prays. And maybe I can get the amen out at the end which says, so be it, Lord. And he takes me to the throne room of God by his prayers. Now, these are the ways in which brothers can do what the pagans do, but we can do far more. 
when our brothers are in affliction, in every affliction. Now, move to D. It is organic. We share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. So Paul is saying this, look, the reason I had such trouble in Ephesus and in Corinth was not because I'm a non-Christian, it's because I'm a Christian for heaven's sakes. When we become believers in Christ, we get into a whole lot more trouble than we were in before. Why? We're in Christ. And when Christ came to this world, he got into trouble. He ended up naked on a tree. So you expect to have just, just glide through and you're in Christ? No. If you're in Christ and you're in a wicked world, you're going to have all kinds of afflictions and sufferings. And Paul says, you know this. But look at this. Just as you're in Christ and you suffer with him, so in Christ you're going to be raised with him. You're going to be comforted with Him. You're going to be strengthened with Him. You have the resurrection power, the power of the Holy Spirit coming into your life. So if you're in Christ, yes, you will suffer for the sake of the gospel. But if you're in Christ, you will also experience the same comfort that Christ Himself experienced. And what was that? He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. And He's on the eve of His darkest hour. And He can look to the Father and trust Him. And say, not my will, but thine be done. And go to the cross with a clean conscience. And know that there's a resurrection coming three days later. He knew that. He preached it before he died. And so Jesus was strengthened. And he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to be, to be strengthened for the cross that he had to bear. That's exactly the way we're to live our lives. It's organic. We're in Christ. And so we get all of Christ's experience. We share in the fellowship of his sufferings, Paul says in Philippians 3. And we share in the power of his resurrection, he says in that same text. Now, it is also obligatory. We're obligated to comfort. Why? If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, Paul says. You must comfort one another. And particularly in the areas where you've received comfort. You say, well, I don't know anybody who needs to be comforted like I was comforted. Well, you need to find them out. Because they're out there. That's what fellowship is all about. Let's get to know each other. And share our 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 expertise in experiencing the comfort of God. It's obligatory. Paul says in Colossians chapter 1 that he rejoices in his sufferings, not only because of what it was doing in his life, but because of what his sufferings were doing for the sake of his brothers and sisters. That's in Colossians chapter 1 when he speaks about the theology of his own ministry. Now, look in uh, verse 7f here, and we'll see that it is inevitable. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. That is, gentlemen, you are going to be comforted. Now maybe you're going to struggle through this life and not access the comfort of God that's available to you right now in one way or another. But I'm telling you, there's coming a day when your sufferings are not to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in you on the day of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. You're going to be amazed. You will get all your comfort then. My only question is, why are you going to wait until then and not have any comfort now? And a lot of your comfort is going to come as you contemplate His ultimate judgment and His ultimate salvation of His people. He's going to deliver you from this crud that we're in. So it is inevitable. Now notice, very importantly, in verses 8 through 10, and we'll have to race along here. We've got about four minutes. It is redemptive. It is redemptive. God uses our affliction to shape us. You get this in Romans 5, where Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. 
because they build character and perseverance and hope. Do you realize that afflictions build your hope? Yes, of course it does. When you, you get to a certain age, and we'll find this out later on, and you, my mother's 94th birthday was yesterday, day before yesterday in East Tennessee. So we just had a great celebration, and mom really looked forward to it, really enjoyed it until we got toward the end of the party, and then she started to fade. So get her back to the nursing home. And eventually we're all going to get there, and my mother has about two friends left. And one of them was there at the party. She's 94. She doesn't have any of her friends left. You know that's going to happen someday. And uh, if, if you live long enough. But where's the comfort going to come from? One day we're all going to be restored. All those who are in Christ. And my mother has been shaped through watching her friends fall off. Because you know what? Pretty soon the only one who really knows you, really knows you, is the Lord himself. And you're left just to depend more and more on him. So everything you're going through is redemptive. Paul speaks of it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18, when he speaks about this, this weight of glory that is coming upon us and that he is shaping us through our afflictions. If we were angels, we wouldn't be shaped through our afflictions. We'd be shaped through our comforts. But since we're sinners... We get shaped through affliction. So when it comes, realize this is a gift from God as well as the comfort adjoining it. Now, lastly, in verse 11, God calls his church to prayer. Gentlemen, I do believe this is how primarily we access the comfort of God. And so in an age which is very activistic, very materialistic, very to-do oriented, very little prayer, you find very little distinctively Christian comfort because the comfort of God is found through people praying together and individuals seeking Him in prayer. And Paul just pleads here. Paul, in his greatest distress with these two churches, pleads with the believers in Corinth, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So Paul says, when you pray... It's obvious that the comfort is coming from God and everybody can see it. That it's a divine reality. I'm not being comforted because you gave me a good meal or gave me a nice vacation or you did, gave me a nice gift. No, I'm comforted spiritually and everybody can see it. So please pray for us, Paul says, so that everybody will see the power of God resting in all of our ministries. Now, this is getting us to the heart of the apostle, the heart of a Christian leader. You know in your own leadership that one of the roles of leadership is to absorb pain. That's the reason you're there. Don't complain about the fact that you have more pain than everybody else. You're supposed to have more pain than everybody else if you're leading. You absorb pain. Paul has been absorbing more pain than he can bear. More pain than he can take. More pain than he can handle. And what we see in the heart of a Christian leader is that he calls upon the Lord and he calls others to do the same. That's got to be our instinct when we find ourselves in our deepest afflictions. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful letter. Thank you for preserving it for us. For it reveals not only the heart of the great Apostle Paul, but it reveals your heart and the heart of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to live and speak and conduct ourselves in a way that is conformable to His image. And so therefore we pray, O Lord, 
comfort us today, strengthen us for whatever afflictions come our way so that we may comfort others in the same affliction. All for your glory and honor through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.